Friends, it's good to be with you today. My name is Adam, if we haven't met, and it's my joy to be one of the pastors here at our church. This is the third week and final week in our series called Generation to Generation. You know, the holidays are coming up, no surprise, and we want to get you prepped to have uh, the most healthy and functional uh, run with your families here in the coming weeks and over the next month or so. Today, we're going to be talking about what does forgiveness and reconciliation look like in our families. And when you think about the most popular TV shows of all time, there's a common thread, uh, whether it's Breaking Bad, uh, The Sopranos, uh, Succession, All in the Family. See, I'm trying to get all the generations in there. Uh, Game of Thrones. They all deal with families, right? The family dynamics of what's going on. And I think that's part of the reason that these shows are successful is because we all know uh, that, that families are complex webs of relationships and that there's a lot that can go on between them. Sometimes art can imitate life. The reality is that, that family life is complicated. You also can't choose your family. And the Bible also gives us narratives about family, and we know that the Bible deals with reality because these narratives, these stories aren't always pretty. And we'll be looking at one of those today in First and Second Samuel. That's the story of, of David. And honestly, uh, this was my favorite class in seminary, First and Second Samuel. And if, if just, I'd encourage you to just read those books. They're in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. And, and, and they really do read like a season of Game of Thrones. No exaggeration. It's wild. That was actually my final project. It was a comparison between uh, the major themes of Game of Thrones and First and Second Samuel. It's the story of the house of David. And in these books, we, we find the desire for power, the drive to continue the family lineage, and, and, and that these, these family relationships are sometimes rivalries that determine life and death. These are all elements of any binge-worthy show right there in First and Second Samuel. So what I hope we'll discover as we study God's word together today is that loyalty to our family can make victory feel like tragedy. King David is one of the central figures in, in all of the Bible. He's Israel's greatest king in the Old Testament. And he's part of the lineage that would, that would bring Jesus, who among other things was called a son of David. David's life was complex. We're going to be looking at his son Absalom's rebellion and his eventual death on the battlefield as he faced his father. But before we get to that part, I want to make sure that we understand kind of all that led up to that so that we get the full impact of what we're going to read in chapter 19. So it starts with the birth of David's sons. Now, people can kind of scratch their heads when, when they read the verses we're about to read, because you may have heard phrases like the biblical definition of marriage. Well, how's that work with David, who had multiple sons and daughters by multiple wives and had multiple concubines? Probably didn't think you'd hear the word concubines at church today. Kind of spicy there. Uh, a massive theme of First and Second Samuel is lineage. Because in David's ancient culture, if you had a bunch of sons, you had, they, that was a bunch of heirs. That meant that your position as king was solidified, that it was secure, and that meant God had blessed you. That meant that you were secure in your power and your house's longevity. So here's a small sample. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 3. Sons were born to David Amnon, the son of Anohim in Jezreel, his second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, the third, Absalom, the son of Micah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. 
public speaking tip whenever you come across complex names like this, if you read them quickly and confidently, people will assume you know what you're talking about. <laughs> so that's how that works. Uh, the detail about uh, Absalom is important because we read that Absalom's mother was the daughter of another king. And this is an example of the politics of ancient Israel, of the ancient Near East. One of the ways alliances were formed between houses or tribes is through marriage. Marriage was in many ways a political mechanism. It wasn't like you fell in love with someone. No, it was because it was politically expedient for Absalom's mother, Talmai, to marry David. The Hebrew word for marry is the same as the Hebrew word for take or seize. That tells you something. So you have Amnon, the firstborn son, and Absalom, the thirdborn son. Absalom would have a sister named Tamar. And in the twisted web of David's family, I told you this was going to get weird. The first son, Amnon, admitted, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Same dad, different mothers. So Amnon is in love with his own half-sister. Amnon hatches a plan to get Tamar alone, and I want to be very sensitive here. But in the part of the narrative in 2 Samuel, where Amnon and Tamar were intimate, she did not have any agency. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad. He hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. So tensions rise, and so does Absalom's rage against his half-brother Amnon, and, and he hatches a plan. He convinces his father, David, both of their father, David, to send out Amnon on an agricultural expedition. And when he's out in the wilderness, he'll, he'll uh, fulfill his plan. He executes his plot against his half-brother. This is from 2 Samuel 13, verse 28. Absalom says to his men, listen, when Amnon is in high spirits from drinking wine, and I say to you, strike Amnon down, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Haven't I given you this order? Am I not the king's son? Be strong and brave, he says. So that's what happens. Then Absalom has avenged his sister Tamar, and he flees. And we learn that revenge isn't the only thing he wanted, because uh, we'll see more. Uh, but we get another detail about Absalom that comes into play. In all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Whenever he cut the hair on his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and his weight was 200 shekels. That's about five pounds. So we learn Absalom has a good head of hair. Now, in college, I would get my hair cut once a year, but mostly because I couldn't afford much else. Uh, but for Absalom, he's got this big head of hair, and uh, we'll, we'll read more about that later. We also learn that Absalom names one of his daughters Tamar after his beloved sister. And then it becomes clear that revenge wasn't the only reason that Absalom uh, was, was plotting against his own family. He also desired power. Now, everybody likes a handsome candidate, right? So Absalom was already in favor with people there. And, and Absalom begins to consolidate power once he returns to Jerusalem. That's the capital city of his father, David. And so in his father, David's shadow, behind his back, he's, he, he, he starts to, to kind of gather people, gather a following. Um, have you ever heard of the term ambulance chaser? That's a pejorative term for lawyers who are, who are trying to capitalize on other people's misfortune. Well, Absalom kind of does the same move and he's trying to capitalize on people's complaints. We read this in 2 Samuel chapter 15. 
Absalom would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him. He'd kind of get to him first. Absalom behaved this way toward all of the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And so his little campaign was so successful that he gathers a significant number of Israelites to support him. And then he makes his move. His father is forced to evacuate the capital. Come, we must flee or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. There were old rivalries In the ancient divided kingdom of Israel, Israel was to the north and Judah was to the south. And so the battle was on. Absalom pursues his father and he meets his end in part thanks to his fabulous head of hair. This is verse 9 and 10 from chapter 18. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told told Joab, that was David's general, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. And Joab says, why didn't you kill him? And the man's response is telling. But the man replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, a great reward, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. So the soldiers are being told one thing by their commanders, but they know that King David actually desires another thing. They're being told that they should kill the king's son on sight, but they also know that David really wants him alive. It's not good to have conflict in the chain of command. Good to have a unified front. And so Joab, David's general, takes matters into his own hands and he stabs Absalom with a javelin and then his men finish the job. So Absalom is dead. And it's with all this backstory that we can now appreciate the words of David in chapter 19. Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard, it is the king grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So after all the terrible things Absalom did, killing his own half-brother, leading a revolt against his father, the king, David's response is still grief. Family's called the tie that binds. And despite all the reasons David had to be glad that his son was out of the picture, That's not his human response. His response is grief. So the soldiers want to celebrate this victory, but David is inconsolable. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, today you have humiliated all your men. I mean, he is telling him off right here. You've humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. To me, this is an all-time line. I mean, you, can't, you, just, you can just hear him just kind of doing one of these. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. What a line. Has your loyalty to somebody ever been so strong that no matter what they do, you still want to give them more chances? 
to the point where people have called your judgment into question? Now that may be true for a friend or someone you're really close with. That's especially true with family. Because to David, Absalom isn't just a murderer or a, a traitor. It's his son. You, can, you can't erase that. This is the power and pull of family. David's undying support of Absalom, who's rejected him, that emotion of David is seen as hatred by the people that love and follow David. And so David's love of the son has become detrimental to him. Not just in his life, or not just in his political life, but in his actual life also. I mean, it's being threatened. And Joab continues not to hold back. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. Telling him off. This is not the first time that David has received the hard truth from somebody. So he's in a tough spot. He can't let his loyalty to his son alienate him from his loyal men. But he also can't hide the grief of the death of his son. Again, family's been called the tie that binds. You can't escape your chromosomes. Now, maybe like in your family, as in mine, uh, I have some relatives who have been adopted. And, and it's always an interesting thing when they, when they go to like a doctor's visit and are asked for family history. And they're like, well, don't really know. But even if it's not biological, we can't change our family's history. So we're still in that same spot. We can't change our family's past. The power and pull of family. Edwin Freeman is the founder of family systems theory and psychology. And he said, the family umbilical cord is infinitely elastic. You can try and get away, but it'll just stretch out and still get you. So throughout this series, we've said that the Bible shows us the not so pretty side of family. Now, I hope our examples from our families aren't as extreme as what we've read about today. If they are, you should preach next week. Um, but but I, mean, I, mean, I wish so many of us weren't as familiar with this, but I think a lot of us know as a parent, when something ain't right with one of your babies, ain't nothing right. Ain't nothing right. Or, or if there's... If there's strain in, in your family, immediate, nuclear, more distant, whatever. It can be like this black cloud that follows you around everywhere. And so loyalty to our family can make victory feel like tragedy. Just like David on a day when his men were celebrating, that actually was a reminder to him of how bad things were with his family the similar effect can happen to us. Meaning the pull of family is so strong that if something isn't right in your family, it's hard for much else to be right. 
Maybe there's been a graduation or a birth or some other type of celebration and, and someone in your family is gonna be excluded because you're trying to preserve peace. That person's absence is still a painful reminder when they're not there of the way things could have been or should be. And then the tough part is, let's say you try and, and, and invite them and bring them in, that could be equally painful. This is especially true during the holiday season when there's all these expectations and everybody comes around these next several weeks. This is a hard thing to acknowledge. This is a hard thing to try and work through. So friends, what do we do with rifts in our families? What I wanna propose to you is a model. This isn't the only way, but this is, this is what I would call the journey of forgiveness in three stages. Three stages on the journey to forgiveness and reconciliation. And this is especially important for, our, for us and our families because we can't really opt out of our family of origin. Stage one, vengeance, or what I call the red truck phase. This is where you have several excellent reasons to wish the person who has done you harm would just get hit by a truck. I'm not ever sure, you, I'm not sure you've heard a pastor say that before. I'm not saying this is a good feeling. I am suggesting it could be an understandable one. Right, if they would just get hit by a truck, this would be a lot easier. My life would be, just be better. Now, again, not a good thing to feel, but I think an understandable one. Uh, in essence, what I'm trying to say is in this stage of vengeance, you want that person to suffer as much as they have caused you suffering. That's what your desire is. You want them to get theirs. You want payback. Stage two of the journey of forgiveness is moving from, ve from vengeance to obedience or what I'm calling the roll your eyes phase. With time, you've come to understand that one thing this person to get hit by a truck is probably an overreaction. You understand that. And then maybe with less of an extreme, you understand cognitively that your desire, your feeling of wanting that person to suffer as much as they've made you suffer is not how Jesus would want you to feel. And this is the roll your eyes part because Jesus says really annoying things like if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. You kind of roll your eyes. Well, Jesus, have you met this person? There's a really crass bumper sticker that I can't say in a sermon, but I'll tell you in the lobby afterwards if you ask me. <laughs> like Jesus says things like, you should pray for your enemies. Who wants to do that? That's why they're my enemy. I like, this is counterintuitive. And yet we know that Jesus calls us beyond revenge. Super annoying. Makes us roll our eyes. But that's part of the progress we have to make. And I want to be real clear. What I'm defining as forgiveness is releasing your right to retribution. Now, I said it that way because it has a lot of R's. And I thought that was catchy. It's letting go of your desire to see that person suffer as much as they made you suffer. That's what forgiveness is. You're moving from actively hoping this person suffers 
as much as they've made you suffer, to no longer wishing that or working towards that. And in this stage of obedience, it's initially not because you actually feel that way. You may not actually feel this way. Again, who wants to love and pray for their enemy? They're my enemy. And so we don't do it because we, we don't do it out of sincerity. We do it out of obedience because we know that Jesus calls us to it. Now, I don't want to underestimate how massive of a step this is from vengeance to obedience. And even if you're at the point where you don't really want to be obedient, but you want to want to someday, does that make sense? Am I sounding crazy? Even if you don't actually want to, if you want to want to, that is also progress. As a pastor, I know that we all carry a lot in here with us. So please don't hear me saying this is easy or should be instant. This is a journey of forgiveness. Going from vengeance to obedience is massive progress. And then the third stage in the journey of forgiveness is what I'm calling transcendence or the fork in the road phase. And this is where we have transcended, we have risen above the hurt which was done to us, the hurt this person caused. It no longer determines our line of thinking or our course of action. And that's a good place to be. Transcendence is us imitating Jesus, who himself suffered many things and on the cross was lifted up and literally rose above evil being done to him in his crucifixion and proclaimed his ultimate victory through the resurrection. He rose above all the evil things being done to him and, you, and took the tool that was uh, brought about to bring his death and used it to bring about our life. And it's through and only through the strength and grace that Jesus can provide us that we too can come to the place where we offer, rat, we offer radical forgiveness, not just out of begrudging obedience, but out of willful, willful desire. We have transcended the need for this person to suffer as they've made us suffer. We've risen above it. And we now actively desire the best for this person. Not, be, not just because Jesus tells us to, that's not a bad place to be, but an even better place to be is because our desires have changed. You may have heard me talk about this in some other sermons, but this process is, is I believe, so vital to our Christian faith I'm going to preach this message until I'm in the ground. Now, friends, forgiveness doesn't mean pretending nothing ever happened or that there aren't consequences for actions. Forgiveness means releasing your right to retribution and coming to the place where you can actually wish this person well. Can we get those three, those three stages up there again? Because here's the thing. These three things can take place independent of this other person. Because really what we're talking about here is the transformation of desire. You see my really high-tech chart there at the bottom. I'll just hit the line button a lot. I don't know. But what we're talking about is the transformation of desire going from wanting vengeance to wanting the best for them only because Jesus tells us to but to then actually desiring it ourselves, to desire this person's well-being, to want the best for them. That's Christian maturity, is our desires changing to be more and more 
like what God would desire for us. I want them to suffer. I want to forgive them because Jesus tells me I should. Two, I want the best for them. That's the transformation of desire. That's Christian maturity. The fancy word for that is sanctification. That's the work of the spirit, which is really the only explanation that we can give when our desires change to be more like God's. Now, this is the fork in the road phase, this, this third transcendence phase, because once you've forgiven them, that's up to you. What they do with that is up to them. So it takes one person to forgive, it takes two people to reconcile. And I don't wanna pretend like this is an easy solution to whatever you're dealing with in your own life, but what I would suggest to you is that if someone has intentionally done something to harm you, and, and, and you try and address that, we talked about that on Halloween, and they still would do it all over again, I think it's pretty hard to reconcile with someone who isn't sorry. That does, so forgiveness doesn't mean the relationship just goes back to the way it was. But forgiveness is what's up to us. All we can do is our part. I love this verse from Romans 12. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now this can be especially difficult in our families where the web of history and, and relationships is complex. And our family realities can be so tragic, it's hard to find a lot of victories. But friends, if things aren't right in our families, it's gonna be hard for much else to be right. Throughout the Bible, there's so much familial language that's used. It's a story about families, Jesus, God's son, and through him, the book of John tells us, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Familial language. The key image of God in the New Testament is one of a loving father. I believe that our families can be little previews of the goodness God desires for all of us to experience. In 2 Samuel 14, King David is visited by a wise woman from a city called Tekoa. She herself was dealing with strife and violence in her family and she gives King David a word that I think is, is one of my favorite Bible verses. This is 2 Samuel 14, 14. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. It's God's desire that, that there would be reconciliation, reunion for people that are far from him and that that would be true in our families as well. So friends, no matter what we've experienced in our families, my prayer is that we could be agents of grace so that through us, God's desire might be realized. That where there is pain and separation, there may be forgiveness and reconciliation. And everybody said, amen. amen. As, we, as we pray together, I, I wanna offer you a simple tool. Again, I, I don't pretend to know whatever you brought in with you, um, but I would offer you this simple prayer that you can repeat here today in worship at the Thanksgiving table when something takes a left turn. Uh, I've been watching Seinfeld on Netflix and there's that episode, Serenity Now. I don't know if you remember that one. 
It's hard to have like 30 year old dated references. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I'd call it a mantra, but I hope this is a prayer that can come to you if, if you find yourself in a moment uh, needing some grace. Uh, and so I'd invite you to repeat after me as we pray together. You can repeat after me vocally or inwardly. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Help me see other people the way you see me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Help me see other people the way you see me. One more time, Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Help me see other people the way you see me. And all God's people said, amen.